This morning we'll be in Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Before we come to the text, as I was preparing this week, I was thinking about a TV show that I haven't watched in several years, but uh, was one that uh, if I was around on Friday nights, if our family was around, we'd, we'd watch it together. It was called What Would You Do? Hosted by John Quijonis. You remember that show? It's actually still on. It's been on for 16 seasons. And it's a TV show that uses hidden cameras to catch what ordinary people would do when they were presented with moral, ethical, or social situations that, quote, any decent person would intervene and make the right choice. Sometimes people would, quote, do the right thing, but often people would just kind of ignore the situation that was presented to them by these actors in these certain situations, not wanting to get involved. And less often, we'd also see people do, quote, the wrong thing. It's a social experiment caught on tape, a social experiment that we actually all kind of encounter in our lives almost each and every day. It's just not caught on tape for others or for ourselves to see how we might respond. I was thinking of that because Esther, in her person, but in the book of Esther, is a kind of what-would-you-do book in the Bible. You know, we often read about how people in the Bible respond to different circumstances. Different circumstances, And if you're like me, sometimes my reaction is that I think, oh, I would have responded much differently <laughs> than they did. How could they have been so stupid? We like to think we'd make the right decision. We'd be faithful to God when those people weren't faithful. Last week, we introduced the idea that Esther and Mordecai weren't necessarily virtuous people who we should emulate, but lived in ways that didn't follow God's law and were, in fact, sinful. And while that's true, and we will unpack that concept more today, we must also realize that we, too, would be just as likely as Esther and Mordecai to live compromised lives. In fact, many of us do that each and every day, often without even realizing it. And yet the good news of the gospel that we will be reminded of is that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, yet more deeply and completely loved than we could ever comprehend. So let's read Esther 2, verses 1 through 13. Again, this is a, another long passage, so hang in there but it is quite eye-opening and interesting. After these things, when the anger of King Azuarius had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. 
Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young, women, well, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, uh, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a ben Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconi, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn, well, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ashuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's unit, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ashuerus into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithgum and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, 
It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that we would be transformed by your word, and Lord, that we would be conformed to it as well. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were in Esther 1, chapter 1, and saw how lavish the Persian Empire was and the context for the story of Esther, how Queen Vashti was removed from her place as queen and how that providentially set the stage for Esther to now become queen. We saw that throughout the book of Esther, even though God isn't mentioned, God's ordinary providential care was Esther's story and it's our story as well. This morning we come to chapter 2. Four years has passed since Vashti was removed as queen. At the beginning of chapter 2, there's a hint of regret by the king for removing Vashti, yet he can't go back on his decree, and so it's time to look for a new queen. And we find ourselves in the first part of chapter 2 in the middle of a strange kind of beauty contest with a whole lot of sexual overtones. It makes us very uncomfortable. And while some of these young women were likely uncomfortable as well, as we know, there may have been some who also were excited for the opportunity. Excited to have this opportunity to become queen. Excited for this opportunity to be gathered in to the harem of the king to have a future that they would have never had otherwise. Maybe even Esther was counted among them. Instead of putting Esther in that position, Mordecai might have concealed her. There are many who look at this text and wonder what Mordecai was thinking. Particularly many Jewish commentators wondering, why would Mordecai have given Esther over to a pagan? Why would have Mordecai put Esther in this kind of circumstance? Surely it would have been better for Mordecai to have defended Esther at all costs, to have fled to the mountains, to have fled as far away as possible, to even die if it meant protecting her. And yet Mordecai gives her over to the king, telling her to conceal the fact that she was a Jew. So what do we make of Mordecai? Was he scheming for influence at the court of the king? Did he not know any better? What was Mordecai doing? Some commentators point out that Mordecai and Esther are likely names derived from the god Marduk and the goddess Ishtar, Babylonian gods. Is the author subtly condemning those Jews who had become too comfortable in exile while still acknowledging that they will have a role 
and playing for the survival of the Jewish race. Whether we take this view or not, by mentioning both their Hebrew and Babylonian names, the author is highlighting particularly with Esther a woman who has two identities. And it's an issue that we will be confronted with later in her story. And so we have these people of Jewish descent. The text makes it clear. It shows us right away in in verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai, and the author connects Mordecai either by him directly being brought into exile, which there are a whole lot of reasons why that might be or might not be the case. We don't have time to go into all of those things this morning. But at the very least, the author is connecting Mordecai to those who had been carried into exile. At least by connecting him to his family who had been carried into exile previously by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so there's no doubt in our mind that this is a family who had direct roots, a direct remembrance of what it meant to live in the promised land, to live in Judah to know what the promises of God were and who they were for. To understand their identity as those who are different, as those who are called out by God. And yet we find these two individuals living in a place and in a way that shows little of their identity as God's holy, beloved people. We know that Israel was commanded by God, was actually called by God. We see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy to be a nation of priests to be those who would proclaim the goodness of God to the nations. Yet through Mordecai's sinful advice and Esther's compliance, her identity as one of God's people is concealed. In the New Testament, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul several times that we have been given a new identity in Christ and that as those who have been given this new identity, we are to live in light of that identity. In Romans 14, verses 7 through 8, none of us, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 1 Peter 2.16-17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor 
the emperor. James Jordan, a commentator, points out that the sins of a man in Genesis are, are shown as first against the father and second against the son and third against the spirit in the world in Genesis chapter 6. And this last sin of the, of, uh, against the spirit of the world is intermarriage. The sin that is uh, pointed to in Ezra and Nehemiah and the sin of Mordecai when he puts Esther into this beauty contest and tells her to conceal her identity. It is the sin of Esther for not speaking up and for not, and for not following Mordecai's sinful advice. We'll see that Mordecai will commit the sin of taking God's name in vain when he rebels against the reasonable demand of God's appointed ruler. We see when he next week will not bow to Haman, who the king has put in his rightful place of rule. But shortly after these events, after we read of this beauty pageant to find a queen, after we read of who Mordecai and Esther are and an understanding of of what happens in this quote-unquote contest to become queen and of Esther subsequently becoming queen, having the crown, royal crown placed on her head and the king having much grace and favor towards her. We then read of Mordecai who is sitting at the king's gate who becomes aware of a plot to kill the king. Mordecai turns them in and they are hanged on a tree. We see here what happens to those who disobey the king, who encourage rebellion. And yet knowing all of this, Mordecai in the next chapter will soon choose to rebel and not only put himself, but all of his people in harm's way. The biblical author in our text makes no attempt to vindicate Esther and Mordecai, right? There's no explanation. There's no discussion of these were extenuating circumstances and this is how they had to live and act, right? Just a generation earlier, we see in Daniel that Daniel and his friends presented with very similar types of requests, choose instead to commit to God's laws, to God's ways. This questionable character and spiritual fidelity of Esther and Mordecai have not just been recently noticed. These were also noticed even by the very first translators of the book of Esther into Greek in the late B.C. time period, they attempted to exonerate Esther and Mordecai by adding explanation to the text, by trying to help the reader have insight into what they would not have had insight to themselves. Yet in God's providence, Esther will not remain a woman of two identities. 
She will not remain in this state of sinful disobedience, whether it was willful or just a way of just being subservient to the culture. But she will not remain in this state, but will be transformed by God's sanctifying work in her life. An integrated life of a Jew, one of God's people, serving and ruling in the Persian Empire. So what do we take from this this morning? We will find that as we go on, that Esther is providentially placed as the queen of Persia. It's a way for God to providentially work the deliverance of the Jewish people. And that providential deliverance of the Jewish people was not rooted in Esther's good work. It was not rooted in Esther's willingness or desire to live a life that honored the one true God. It was rooted in the promise of God himself. It was rooted in the promise of the covenant that God had made with his people, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the people of God through Moses, with Joshua, with King David, the promise that continued throughout the history of God's people. And we, as followers of Christ, are heirs of those promises today. Right? This story of Esther and Mordecai shows the wonderful chain of events God used to fulfill the covenant promise to his people. And as we as the church read this story today, God continues to work through providence to fulfill his promises of his covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Right, the, the, the miracles of Esther, as we talked about last week, are providential miracles. We don't anywhere in the text have a direct link to God making these things happen. We don't have God coming into the story as he does in Exodus, as he does in Judges, as he does through the kingly period, through the prophets, through the kings and the prophets. There is a veil where God is not seen. And yet God is still at work, the work of providence. As God providentially works in and through his church, there are providential circumstances where people have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are providential circumstances where Christians are conformed to the likeness of his son. And through the providence of God, 
he is directing all of history towards its close and to the return of Jesus Christ. We're reminded in this story of Esther ascending to the throne that Jesus Christ calls for the transformation of every area of our lives, and he will not leave us in a place that we have not been transformed into his likeness. And that as Jesus calls us to transform every area of our lives by the work of the Spirit, we then begin to relate our Christian faith to practices, morals, and ideologies of the society and culture which we find ourselves. Whether or not that culture is favorable or hostile to our faith. Karen Jobes in her commentary points out, quote, we should each strive to live in obedience to our Lord, but it is not always clear what that means in the nitty-gritty details of daily life in the 20th century. Moreover, regardless of our good intentions, none of us has pure motives all the time. Even when we know the right decision, our hearts are not always committed to it. This is where the silence about Esther and Mordecai's character and spiritual fidelity becomes a powerful encouragement. Regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was or whether they had lost their way, or whether they had the best of motives. God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. We are no different from them, yet our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them, through us, and most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in evil ways." Let me say that a little differently. Because my guess, actually, my, I know this to be a fact that many of us have been told that God can't overcome our decisions. You better make the right choice. You better do this, that's right, or God will punish you, or God won't work, or God won't do this, or God won't do that. You better be faithful. You better live faithfully because God will not bless you if you do not. It's up to you. You make this choice. What, you didn't share the gospel with that person that you sat to next, to next to on the plane? What if the plane goes down that they're on next time? What will, how will they know who Christ is? Do any of those things sound familiar? Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is full of commands, even, of urging God's people to live faithfully, to make the right choice, 
to share the good news of the gospel with all those that we come into contact with each and every day. The providence of God and our responsibility in Scripture work hand in glove. And yet, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that even on our best days, even on our best days, what we deserve is God's punishment and wrath. Even on her best day, Esther deserved and Mordecai deserved what will Haman will desire of them. That's what's so amazing about grace. The providential grace of God in our lives the grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ says you are a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the most high God and he works all things, all things, ultimately for your good and for his glory. And while it pains our Heavenly Father when we make mistakes, your life, my life, is not destroyed. If we don't make the right decision, if we don't make the right call. There may be pain, there may be suffering, there may be hardship in those. But our God is still with us. And still loves us. And still has us in the palm of his hand. God has providentially placed each one of us wherever he has placed us, wherever he will send us. And he will work all things according to his will for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for this story of Esther that is in a time so far from our own, and yet, Lord, if we're honest, is so much like our own time. Lord, help us to see you at work, but when we don't, 
Help us to trust. And even more than that, Lord, help us to know that in your sovereign, your providential work, Lord, you are working according to your will for our good and for your glory. Lord, remind us by your spirit that we are yours and there is nothing we could ever do or say. that would change that reality. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.